0: Jingle bells swing and jingle bells ring Snowing and blowing up bushels of fun Now the jingle
1: hop has begun It's time to pimp up your Christmas mojo. Welcome to the show that's a bit like Santa. Well, at least it gets three hoes
2: a year. Hey everybody and welcome to another Christmas edition of the Mojo Radio Show. We take it upon ourselves to bring back the Christmas spirit. <laughs> AP, nice intro, buddy, in the spirit. And uh, let's say Merry Christmas, Mr. Robertson.
1: Mm, Merry Christmas to you too. And we also need to say Happy Birthday to Mr. Peters. Happy Birthday,
3: Happy Birthday, Happy
1: Birthday. His birthday over the weekend, he's... uh, He's sunning himself somewhere in the north coast of New South Wales. We might have to try to get him on the phone a bit later. What do you reckon?
2: (laughs) Uh, There's some things you can't unsee. Um, That's right, exactly. (laughs) Folks, welcome to the show. If you are a newbie to the Mojo Radio Show, welcome. Nice to have you company. The show is all about finding people that we find interesting, people we think have their mojo working either in or out of work. They've got tips, tools, opinions, just stuff that we can steal, we can take from them. To apply to our own world, or maybe even pass on to a friend who's just struggling to find their mojo. If you're a regular mojo, welcome back. Nice to have you with us. Thanks for hitting the download button. We surely appreciate it every week. And folks, being Christmas, if you want to send us a little Christmas present, jump onto iTunes, leave us a review. You'll see ratings and reviews one line, just throw us a bone, <laughs> something, yeah. a little, a little <laughs> Christmas snag on the barbie, just to get us through, mm. to get our mojo working as we head into Christmas.
1: And before you, before you change the subject, just quickly, we apparently have to say g'day from down under to all our down under Brazilian listeners. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, it's.
2: Um, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. Mm. But I, uh, I use a an online program called Mention. Mm. which gives you an idea of when you or any brands you're associated to are mentioned in social media. Mm. And I bought, which is a website which is hosting our podcast. Now, I don't understand the language. I think it's Brazilian or Argentinian or something Sudamerican. Um, but hi to all our friends, <laughs> friends yeah. out there, whoever you are. Yeah. Uh, nice to have you on board. So Absolutely. goodness knows where it came from, but it's nice to know that people think so highly of us. They yeah. want to put us out into uh, the internet. Some guy going, listen, this stuff, this is so cool. We've got to put this up. okay <laughs> yeah, okay What? What do you yeah. two guys say? What? Yeah, bring me tequila. Bring it now. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine sounded more Vietnamese than... Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's Christmas time, eh? Gary's 20 cents worth. All right. Now, um, mate, I have got a little story for you because mm. you said you have been out running. Is that right?
1: I have indeed. Well, what tries to what I try to pass off as running, yes.
2: Is it working for you?
1: Yeah, it's going well. Get the heart rate up, always a mm. good thing. Come home, mm. into the smoothie, into the coffee, into the studio.
2: Well, I got a little something something for you. Mm. It's called how to turn hit H-I-I-T, into MIT M I T. Okay. And Micha Zuhi is a hit researcher and professor at the Central Michigan University School of Health Sciences. Mm. Now, they did a study of type people with type 2 diabetes and they found that participants who were randomised to alternate between fast and slow walking intervals lost weight, fat mass and were able to lower their blood sugar levels. Mm. Now, the control group who worked at just a continuous pace for the same amount of time as the interval walkers did lose any weight. Their blood sugar and insulin levels actually worsened. Ah. So the idea of this is hit workouts are short interval sprints where rather than going out for a run and trying to run five or six or 10Ks, you go out and you do full-intensity sprints you can mm. do it on an exercise bike, on elliptical, you could do it running, you could do it swimming, but it's getting your heart rate up to a max, but you only do it for 20 seconds. And then you walk, or let your heart rate come back down again. And then you sprint again, and then you walk, let your heart rate come down again, or mm. you cycle slowly. So the idea is high intensity, then you let your heart rate drop down, high intensity, and you might do seven to eight repetitions of this. So your workout might only be you know, 10, 15 minutes tops. Mm. However, there's a lot of evidence now saying that this actually will give you a much better result than going and running for 5Ks at a constant pace. Mm. Mm. The idea of MIT, double is to alternate between bursts of moderate, not high-intensity exercise and recovery periods. Okay. So you could do it walking on a treadmill with an incline, for example, and you might do an incline for two to four minutes then you rest and walk slowly for 2 to 4 minutes and so on and so on. Mm. You do the same thing in the swimming pool but instead of doing high intensity you do medium intensity depending on what your goals are. So I the people I work with one on one I regularly suggest this and people have seen really good really good results from it. Mm. It also doesn't tax your body as much because we think we have to go out and do these long hour sessions in the gym or Mm. go for long runs on the road. Mm. In actual fact, it's more time efficient. It's better for fat loss, better for your sugars and so on. So... Mate, over Christmas time, I'd be recommending looking at the hit, and if the hit doesn't work for you, just do medium intention, Just do something where you can mm. even walk briskly at a pace, mm. uh, and then walk slowly. But just do four, five, six, seven repetitions of it. And yeah. um,
1: do you know the only problem with that is the guy who came up with it obviously didn't have a fifteen-week-old border collie who, when you run and then slow down, looks at you as if to say, "Well, what?" <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Why? see are stopping. Where, that's where you've got to get onto Caesar Milan. Yeah, that's right. And you've got to, you 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 got to get yourself a little bit of dog psychology, brother. So yeah, that's what absolutely. He just doesn't get it. Right? He just looks at you and goes, "Man, come on. I was running. What's going on here?" <laughs> we uh, we digress, but I will post this full story, this full study um into the show notes for anybody who's interested, but folks, I would highly suggest you read this. It's time efficient. Hmm. Results are great. I, work, I use it myself when I'm training for the Tour de Cure. It uh, it's very good. Well, see. it
1: doesn't sound like there's too much hit or miss about that, then, does there?
2: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he's here all day. Yeah. Um, we have got a big show, a couple of guests on the line. So, should we just jump into it? We've
1: got another. It's a Mojo Show Double, double Shot Monday.
2: Going on this week, right? Well, we have, and they're quite eclectic in nature, but we just thought being Christmas, and honestly, we'd recorded both these interviews and we loved them so much, we thought we'd play them both. Mm-hmm. So our first guest this morning is mm-hmm. a professor. I don't think we've had a professor on before, Robo. Yeah,
1: there's one here every week, me.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the professor of rock. That's
2: um, it. But I, uh, I came across this guy because I was talking with his boss. We were having a discussion about blood and how... We can feel okay, we can look okay, but on the inside, if we're not looking and doing our due diligence on our own blood,
0: mm.
2: we don't have a true indication of how our health is. And mm. the typical blood test may not be giving us the full picture. So he introduced me to Professor Blur, mm. uh, who is Dr. Ken Sakaris. He's a Melbourne University graduate. Mm. He has trained at the Royal Melbourne, Queen Victoria, Prince Henry's and Heidelberg Repatriation Hospitals. Right. He has obtained a fellowship from the Royal College of Pathologists in Australia (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the Australasian Association of Clinical Biochemists in 1992 and 1997, respectively.
3: Yeah.
2: He's done a load of other stuff and he started at Melbourne Pathology in 2003 and specialises in prostate-specific antigen Right. Cholesterol and quality insurance. And so he's only got he's, a little bit of an idea about what he's talking about. Is that what you're telling us, Gary? <laughs> so have I sold you on this guy yeah, yet? Yeah, I think you have. Yeah. <laughs> so that just means he's good. Yeah, totally. He's, very, he's really, really good. He's really and good. Today, we're going to delve into blood. We have had this discussion mm. ongoing when we have people on about wellness and health and so on. Mm-hmm. And, you dealing with your Crohn's, I thought it'd be a great guest on to have at this time of the year, just to get us to have a think about our health and wellness as we project into the new year. So, mm-hmm. uh, Professor Blood, Dr. Ken Sakaris, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you. Ken, let's just start with, can you just describe to our listeners the sort of work you're doing each day at Melbourne Pathology?
4: Well, Melbourne Paths a relatively large uh, lab, a relatively large lab in Melbourne, and so we collect samples from 250 collection centres across the state of Victoria. And so in our central lab, we receive mainly blood sample, but other stuff as well, from about 10,000 patients every day Wow. And whilst they those tests are the common tests like cholesterol and sugar and thyroid and iron tests, vitamin tests, um, there are some other more crucial tests like you know cancer tests and um, uh, tests for you know more severe illnesses. So um, that's that's what we do. What do I do? Um, I'm I just. I'm one of the team that look, makes sure that the tests are being done with the highest quality, that yep. sort of fills their purpose. And, and I'm largely there as a liaison person for people who want to ask about the tests. Which test do I do? What does the result mean? Is there another test I should be doing? And that advice is predominantly to the general practitioner but also to specialists and mm. occasionally and increasingly to patients. So how, how do I do that? If, uh, uh, this, is, this is an area that I'm,
2: we're going to jump ahead a little bit here, but I'm quite interested in what you just said, Ken. Mm. I have my test done and you said that I could, I, can I, if I have my test done, can I talk to someone like you directly to help me interpret really what's going
4: on with my blood work? Um, in general, we prefer not to. To speak to patients directly right. because we don't know, um, you know, your full situation, and so you know, just to look at a blood test in isolation compared to everything that's happened to you and your family history and so on, you know, and it's sort of a bit cruel to do that over the phone as well because I can't mm. judge whether you're getting anxious with what I say, or so. so we do prefer not to do that, but. On the other hand, if somebody's at home sweating over a result and their GP's overseas or the GP says, I've gone on holidays, you have to wait, um, we'd much rather, um, you know, people try to find some information and we could reassure them or tell them what needs to be done about the test rather than them fretting about something possibly unnecessarily at home. Um. Through your
2: work in the the, the general realm of pathology, blood testing, Ken, what are the most common health problems that we are facing today?
4: Um, Well, by far, it's um, related to overweight and obesity and diet. Mm -hmm. Um, The recent um, Australian Bureau of Statistics survey done in 2011-12 found that 63% of Australia is overweight or obese. So it's sort of normal to be overweight in australia. it's it's not quite as bad as the Americans, but you know we're we're up there in terms yeah. of one of the sickest nations in the world and and that obesity has and that um, overweight has impacts on not only diabetes rates and pre-diabetes or cardiovascular heart attacks and so on and strokes and high blood pressure but also you know like joints wearing out and and um sleeping poorly so there's a huge impact of this and mm-hmm. the rate of the rate of you know decline in the population's wellness and in this regard is it doesn't look like we're going to be able to reverse it very quickly. So it's only going to get worse.
2: Ken, there was a very successful film made just recently called That Sugar Film, which uh, you featured in. Was there something in that film that surprised you? I mean, was there something in there that either surprised you or, on the other hand, made perfect sense to you based on what you were seeing in your laboratory doing 10,000 tests a day?
4: I wasn't surprised by the general gist of the film, which is that, you know, there's a lot of hidden sugar in our diet and um, it's having sort of some fairly diabolical effects. But I was a bit surprised because Damon, uh, the the producer, director, key actor in it, he he went on to this um, low-fat diet, which by definition was sort of a high-carb, high-sugar diet, and... um, we didn't know what would happen because he had a fairly healthy diet, and his liver tests, which was one of the things that we were following, just um, worsened very rapidly. And I was, I was surprised by that, and you can sort of see. I'm not an actor. The surprise that I expressed in the film was a real surprise. I couldn't believe how quickly he developed a fatty liver um, now he may have been primed for that because his diet was so good beforehand, and all this shook his body with a average, poor diet. Afterwards, um, had a you know, very rapid effect, but um, that was surprising, and and in a way it gave me an an extra insight into you know the effect of diet the very rapid effects of diet on blood tests and all the patients that we see. You know, we, we imagine that this is an accumulated effect, but it's something that can occur very rapidly.
2: What was interesting, I think, with that, Ken, uh, was that, and you just mentioned a couple of seconds ago, that this was seemingly a healthy diet. So this wasn't like Super Size Me, where the guy went on to burgers and fries and shakes. This was... Shopping at the supermarket in the health food aisles, so to speak, and choosing foods which in some way or another were trying to create the perception they were healthy, but in actual fact, they were loaded with sugar, which then had the impact of Damon getting
4: fatty liver. Is that, is that correct? Is that, am I reading that the right way? That's, that's exactly right. I mean, we, we discussed initially that you know, he would try to eat only the things with the National Heart Foundation tick, which mm-hmm. was largely based on a low-fat um, you know, content in the food. Um, it did the whole area makes me a bit guilty because I've been in medicine twenty years, and I've been part of this um general push to decrease the amount of saturated fat in the diet mm. Mm. and um and in that um, what's approaching hysteria in terms of the fat content of diet, um, we've neglected. Other key components of the diet, like sugar. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, completely neglected it, really, because, um, you know, people sort of think that all oh, that sugar is really good for you and the Gatorade drinkers and everything's like, you need it for energy, you know. <laughs> so it's quite. Um, worrying. <laughs> I think it's very
2: worrying and something I'm mm. curious about um, some years ago I read a book that was actually written in 1972 called Pure White and Deadly. Oh, good on you. <laughs> by John, how do you pronounce it? Yadkin? Yadkin, yes. Yadkin? Yeah, yeah. And then more recently I read Sweet Poison by a friend of yours, David Gillespie. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've, written, I've read both of his books and mm. with that in mind, I am absolutely 100% in agreement with you. And Robbo and I have been on this bandwagon for quite a while now with their show for the year we've been going. And mm-hmm. what I find fascinating, and Robbo and I have often talked about the psychology behind all this, that as much mm-hmm. as we now seem to know what's going on, there are still people who, def- despite hearing these messages, hearing the data, seeing the tests, documentaries, still believe that fat is the enemy and will go and choose these low-fat, high-sugar products, which really, and most of them are in the health food aisle at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, how, how do we get this message through to people to say what we've been led to believe
4: actually has a form? Well, it's virtually taken us a generation to get this message into the community and it's probably going to take a generational change to get it out. And that's, as far as that Sugar film's concerned, that was sort of a deliberate strategy of making the movie attractive to the new generation so that they don't make the mistakes. It's not only this issue, sort of like a brainwashing that's hard to wipe out, but, you know, Sugar is highly addictive, you know, the carb craving and so on that people experience. Sugar is addictive and that plays with your mind and what you want to believe about diet as well. So I, I, I'm afraid, you know, the psychology is important. The brainwashing that we've had, sugar's harmful. I mean, I mean, also... Um, people are not used to eating fat. They eat fat and mm-hmm. they think, oh, this is strange. It must be, you know, are you sure this is good for me? And, yeah, know, yeah. Whereas I'm, I'm uh, in my late 50s, so I remember when we used to have lots of lard and butter and everything and yeah, I'm yeah. happy to eat the stuff. Mm. <laughs> but the mm, new yeah. generations probably aren't. Mm. The other thing that um, I'd, I'd say about the, you know, having to change the system is that, Carbohydrate-containing food is very cheap to make, cereals and sugar and so on. So it's virtually impossible, even if we could get the message across by tomorrow, that everyone should be decreasing their sugar and carb consumption and increasing their fat consumption. The food industry is not ready for it.
2: If there is someone listening to the show, Ken, and they are interested in knowing what's going on inside themselves. So there is someone who thinks, and I I hear it all the time, my diet's pretty good, but it's the pretty part that's messed up. And what they think is a good diet, in actual fact, has some major downfalls in it in terms of the hidden sugars that we've talked about with the movie and Damon and so on eating, what he thought was a healthy diet according to the labels, but in actual fact had a lot of hidden sugars. If there is someone listening to the show and they would like to know specifically what is going on inside themselves, like some actual science specific to that individual, where should they go and what should they ask for to get the best possible blood panel to give them an indication of what's going on inside before it's too late? Um,
4: Before you get to a blood panel, um, we've sort of got a blindness to to wait, we've sort of people don't like to think of themselves as overweight and so on. And I'm often talking to GPs about people with poor blood panels and they're arguing with me about whether it's bad or not. And I eventually ask them, well, tell me, how heavy are they? What's their BMI? And you should never ignore that factor. And that would be the first thing people say, oh, you know, even though I'm slightly overweight, it's genetic, it's nothing, I'm feeling (laughs) great. You know, there are a million excuses. So... I would say that everyone who's got a BMI of over 25 or certainly over 30 should accept that they've probably got a problem Mm -hmm. and yes, and go to the next step. Now with the blood test, what value are they? I mean, to a degree, if you're obese, the the blood tests are just going to reinforce that message but Mm -hmm. one of the major values of the blood test is that it will reinforce the message. You take... Um, some action, and the blood test will improve. And so not only will the scales improve, but the blood test imp- will improve. And so what yeah, you're right. saying is you'll get an external message and an internal message that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. So it's, it is quite a handy thing. Now, the blood test that um, I like the most, the pre-diabetes thing, uh, you know, the diabetes or pre-diabetes, there's a new test now, um, mm-hmm. And that's called the hemoglobin A1c test. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but what it is, is just as sugar sticks to you know, your fingers and makes them sticky and so on, sugar sticks to the red color in the blood, the hemoglobin. And that's what hemoglobin A1c is, just glucose stuck to hemoglobin. And so the higher your sugar levels, the more hemoglobin A1c we measure. So it's a measure, because hemoglobin lasts so long in the blood, it's a measure of your sugar levels over the last three months.
0: Wow.
4: That's a powerful test at not only predicting diabetes, but it also has a very powerful prediction for heart disease.
2: And can I get that through the GP? Do I, do I go to a
4: GP to recommend getting that yes. panel done? Yeah, yeah. and... Okay. and um If you've got a risk factor for diabetes, like being overweight or family history or or blood pressure or so on, the Medicare says you're entitled to one of these tests a year. In the lipid test, the cholesterol test, people are so focused on cholesterol. Yes. The cholesterol on its own, there was actually some guidelines came out from my college, the College of Pathologists, to say we shouldn't even be reporting the total cholesterol. It's a useless Mm. result. There's a whole lot of other parameters that we report with cholesterol that are more important. Um, and people have heard of good and bad cholesterol, the good mm. being HDL and HDL, the bad yeah. being LDL. Yep. But actually, we've got even more knowledge about that now. There's certain types of LDL which are bad and certain types of LDL which aren't bad.
2: So you're talking and the small particle type thing? Is that, that, exactly, that what's referred to the there? Small okay, yep, yep,
4: yep. Now, we do have... Um, there's one lab that I know of in the last 10 years um, that's been running the small dense LDL test. And strangely enough, it's at the um, Sydney Adventist Hospital in, in um, Sydney. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah by it's a huge hospital. Yeah.
1: yeah, massive.
4: They're way ahead of their time, as the cardiologists there are as well. And... Um, I should declare that my, the company that I work for recently sort of entered into a relationship with them, so we're, we're actually brothers now. Now, that <laughs> test's available. It costs about $80 to work out whether your LDL is actually small and dense. Um, I generally think that that's a very reassuring thing to do if you can afford the $80, mm. but you'll get a pretty good idea of whether you've got small dense L by just looking at the blood triglyceride level. Yeah, yeah. And if the triglycerides are over 1.5, I would lay bets that you've got small dense LDL. Yeah. And if it's under 1.0, which is where you you should be aiming for, you've got no small dense LDL.
1: Can I just take you back a couple of steps? You just mentioned that our overall cholesterol is not particularly an accurate guide when it comes to measuring our cholesterol. Mm. Yet, when I go to see my cardiologist who who incidentally works at the SAN that we were just talking about, when I go to see him and he looks back over my test results from the last 12 months, the first thing he goes to look at is my overall cholesterol. So, I'm presuming is that still a starting point to understand what's happening with our blood?
4: It is a starting point because when the statins came in and all the new drugs in the 90s, the, the pharmaceutical benefits schedule determined who was entitled to get these drugs. And it was based on the knowledge that we had 20 years ago, which was based all around total cholesterol. Mm, mm. So even at the moment, the the guidelines that say who deserves a statin or not is based on total cholesterol, yep. even though our knowledge has progressed way beyond that in the last mm. 20 years.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, see, I got put on a statin um, yeah. the first time I went to the cardiologist, which was after I had a, a blockage in one of the small arteries around my heart, which is how I ended up seeing him. And he mm. put me on a statin at the time because even though I was wasn't over the recommended level. I was high within that yeah. range, within the normal range. Yeah. And twelve months after, after taking up exercise and, and going and putting myself on a on a a, a diet that I'm still on now, an in inverted commas healthy diet, my good cholesterol was actually dangerously low. The twelve yeah. months later, when I went back to him, he said, "Mate, you've got to get off it." So it, it's a it's a real balancing act, isn't it?
4: Yeah. No, the statin can drop the HDL, no matter what mm. the company say. Yeah. Got, and I, I would agree with him that if you've got a obstruction, you know, until we get rid of that risk, mm. the statin has this. It it is beneficial. It's just whether there's a better way of doing it. Yeah. You know, improving your risk, but the statins. You know, reduce your risk of heart disease if you've got a very high risk, mm, mm. you'll get a huge benefit from the statin. Yeah. If you've got a minimal risk, you'll still get a benefit from the statin. You know I sort of see them like the band aid they're not addressing the underlying issue, which may be getting rid of that small dense LDL. What they do is they actually lower the you've got small dense LDL will reduce the amount you've got the the issue is not to reduce the amount you've got, is to get rid of it altogether. and that's what, the, that's what these new diets can do.
1: It's interesting isn't it, some of the work that's going on at the moment, I noticed the other night that they're now saying that aspirin as well as being good for reducing our risk of heart attack and stroke is also showing some results in terms of lowering our risk of things like bowel cancer. Um, are these studies anything that you've come across in
4: your line of work? Um, there's a couple of fascinating new areas in Clinical medicine, research, pathophysiology, and one of them is the gut mm. and the the whole issue of the bacteria in our gut or the microbiome mm. and its interaction with the body yeah. in terms of how the body tolerates those bacteria, what sort of inflammation can rise from them, and so on, mm. and and uh, the potential importance of of the microbiome not only to autoimmune disease and. In- inflammation, but also potentially to cancer.
3: Yeah.
4: Um, we're just starting to understand, yeah. and um, and that's probably ten years away before we've got a handle on that. If I was a new researcher i'd be I'd be wanting to work in that area.
2: <laughs> Ken just um taking you back a bit, you talked about taking your results to a GP or someone to analyse your data that comes from these tests. Would you think that people should be starting to monitor and keep their own files of history so that they can see changes according to something they may change in their diet, record these details to see a trend in their, in their blood panels?
4: Ideally, they should. I think patients should mm-hmm. be buying into their own healthcare, not leaving mm-hmm. it up to, you know, the fragmented medical system. And that's and that really is a driver for um, something that you know, many would have heard of, which is this personally controlled electronic health record of the government's funding with billions of dollars. So the idea is that um, patients or GPs and hospitals and path labs and so on will all be submitting results into a centralized database. And so patients and their carers can have access to all of the results of the patient.
2: Can I, can I ask you about that? I take exception of going to a medical centre or a doctor and having somebody who's overweight <laughs> analyse my panels yeah. and dish out to me something to take because I've got an ailment of some sort. So yeah. I go, well, you know, you're looking after yourself. What right have you got to analyse my stuff to give me advice? So how do I choose a good chaperone? Who do, I, do I go to a naturopath? Do I go to a wellness, a holistic medicine person? Do mm. I go to a straight GP? Do I go to you? I mean, mm. who do I talk to? I
4: mean, ideally, you've got a, somebody who you do identify with. But it's not easy to find a good GP. And to be totally honest, the best ones are so booked out, they don't advertise their availability anymore.
3: hmm mm.
4: So so really, you have to sort of get into discussion with your friends and, you know, you're looking great. That was interesting information. Who's your GP? And try to muscle yourself in there. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's,
3: but,
4: um, yep, it's good. Now, I, I have to when you said, uh, you know, this overweight person, I have to tell you a funny story. One, I've got a few YouTubes um, with uh, lectures. that. Um, yes. And uh, after the first one, which was uh, actually... Uh, before the sugar film. Um, I had it up on site and I got a bit of a... Um, I got a few comments, most which were good, but one of them said, <laughs> don't believe what a fat guy says. <laughs> <laughs> now, my BMI at the time was 28, 29, mm. and, and i just committed to this uh, movie and I was thinking, what the hell am I doing? So I actually went on the diet and lost 15 kilos. Mm. And... Um, and by the time that comment went out, I went got back to that guy and I said, "Look, you're right. I, you yeah. know, I was my, my BMI was bordering obesity, mm. and um, and I ignored it, and um, and so now when when people talk to me, they sort of see that I've got a commitment to the message that I've got. I actually practice what I preach." And um, ideally, you find
1: somebody like that. Yeah, look, I, I got to say my cardiologist, you know, if I if I put on a kilo every every 12 months, you know, in, a, in the 12 months since I've last seen him, he'll stomp on me absolutely 100%. Yet he's half my height and twice my weight without a, <laughs> without any doubt, you know, and it's just yeah. a bit like you. I walk out of there, uh, uh, you know, once a year and just to, with a smirk on my face going, yeah, okay, I'll worry about that one kilo later on maybe. You uh, you're know?
2: a broken, you're a broken, walk out of broken, man. Yeah, that's right. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Great story. He's a lovely guy though and a great cardiologist. So um I shouldn't um, shouldn't be wish too... he's not smoking. That's right. Yeah, he's well, not well, smoking. Not,
2: not in front of Robbo. Anyway, um, Yes. <laughs> Can you you have the nickname Professor Blood? Oh, yeah. actually, how you were introduced to
4: me—it's <laughs> just the coolest name. How did you end up with that nickname? Damon came to me. He had some funding for the sugar film, and he said, that, "Look, I'm planning to do this. Can you do the blood test?" And I thought, "This is a good message about sugar. Yes, I'm going to yeah. do it." And I signed some contracts there. A couple of pages of fine print, <laughs> and. Uh, then the movie got bigger and bigger because the you know the investors liked it and it got more funding and the animation and so on. Then he sent me the the book, the that sugar book, which is a great summary of the of the movie, and it's got recipes and other things. And uh, my daughter was paging through the book I didn't even notice. she said, oh, "I like your picture in the book, Dad." And I said, "What picture?" I didn't even notice anything. And it was because I was a cartoon character in the book. <laughs> I was <laughs> like a, a vampire <laughs> called Professor Blood. Professor Blood. That's all Damon's doing. and But I appreciate it and I'm... Happy to go with it for the sake of the message. Well, mate, it's the uh, it's the
2: coolest name. Yeah, absolutely. i was worried I might have stolen it from
4: somebody. <laughs> 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 so there's no Professor Blood in the world, other than uh, and I think a physiologist in the UK, but I don't think his real name is Professor Blood.
1: <laughs> really? Because <laughs> that was my first question when when your interview appeared in the Mojo Diary. Gary just put right. Professor Blood, and that was my first question. Surely
4: that's not his real name.
1: <laughs> there are. Look, I've known
4: doctors, Dr. Death and Dr. Pain, which oh. are real names. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I thought my name was pretty – my real name, Sicarus. I mean
1: – Sicarus, yes. I think
4: starting a chain of, of thing called Sicarus.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> fully, fully sick, mate. Fully nice sick.
2: Nice one. Um, Thanks. Can – uh, if people would like to know more about your work uh, or get in contact, where do you want to send them somewhere? Do, should they contact you or Melbourne Pathology? Or I
4: think it's – but the YouTubes – I did the YouTubes just because there was a lot of people who couldn't come to the lectures that we did and we thought we'd made them available and I was a little bit – I was almost embarrassed by the fact that tens of thousands of people looked at them, but there's about five or six lectures, so mm-hmm. people – you know, if they want to know where I'm coming from, just look up Sakaris on YouTube and look at a lecture that you might be interested in the topic of. And then after that, um, you know, I'd prefer that you discuss those issues with your own health people, but if you're yes. running into a brick wall or you, you think that there's something that's just not working, then um, you can try to contact me through Melbourne Path if you're like lucky enough yeah. to get yeah. through <laughs> Uh, and I, I, but pretty, I am um, happy to um, to help people who are really um, anxious about their results. It's mm, very nice of you, mate. Absolutely. I'll put a
2: link uh, in the show notes for on our website, and I will probably post on the Facebook for you, Ken, because one of the particular videos of yours I watched was a very good illustration that answers the question, which I know a lot of people have got on their mind, but I know you've got a flight to catch, so we'll let you go. But is sugar in fruit good or bad for you? And, There's a very good video which I will put a link to in the show notes and post on our our, our Facebook page that people can watch where you run through that whole thing of glucose and fructose and how it all works. And um, it's definitely worth sitting down with a cup of coffee and watching that just to clear up some of the misconceptions we have. So um, we'll put that link up. Professor Blood, as you was, as you shall well now be known as on the major absolutely show, <laughs> uh, it's been great, mate. I have been looking forward to chatting with you. I knew this would be great. Mm. Very informative. It's answered up a, a lot of queries we've got, and I think it also allows us to project forward in our own health with what it might look like and how we can take more control out of our own being and our own wellness for ourselves and our families. So, um, Thanks for your time, mate. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Oh, pleasure. Been a pleasure.
5: Uh, for Santa Claus, I leave out um, the green lollies that I don't like.
2: <laughs> I hate green lollies. Santa, baby. Uh, a beer and some biscuits. Beer.
4: And what it leftovers from the fridge. I leave carrots out for the reindeers too. Oh, I don't know. I don't know who eats them. I'm never there. A beer.
5: Always a always a jug of beer and, and a couple of cookies. He must be pretty pretty full by the end of the night.
0: It's a baby and hurry down the,
2: the Mojo Radio Show. You know, Robbo, there's a lot of great stuff in there, but one of the things that I keep thinking about that we hear from a lot of our guests on health and wellness. It's just taking responsibility for your own health mm. and actually doing the research yourself to know what's going on inside your system and outside your system, I think. Definitely. And really, you know, if that's not working, mate, your mojo ain't going to be working.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can vouch for that at the moment. My um, my Crohn's is playing up and it's certainly mucks with your head at the same time. Yep. So um, yep. so yeah, it's yep. not a good thing. But uh, on a happier note though, I was watching the project here on Australian TV a couple of weeks ago and came across this fantastic feel good project. A man who's uh, not only out in the corporate world as you are, week in, week out, but um, he's using his corporate speaking to basically help thousands of people all over the world who have been victims of landmines in a really, what I think is a really innovative and clever way. So. On the line from the Helping Hands Project, we have Matt Hendricks. Matt, how are you going? Really
5: well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Mate, uh, how does this all work? Basically, we um, run team building and and corporate training events where... Um, you guys might be holding a, a conference, some um, Christmas drinks, whatever it is that you're doing, and I'll bring along a kit bag with 30 bits of plastic and metal, and your employees will physically put them together to make real prosthetic hands that we donate to landline victims. And more than that, during the process, we, we get all of your employees to kind of empathise a bit with those victims they're helping. So we, we put stubby holders over your dominant hand and you have to basically work to assemble these prosthetic hands oh, as if you're an amputee yourself.
2: That is fantastic, mate. Isn't it?
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool but also challenging to people. So, yeah.
2: Matt, just to, to set some context for this um, in going through the work you've done, I found a stat which I just found absolutely staggering. There are 100 million active landmines in around 60 different countries of the world yes. about... 2,000 landmine accidents every month, which is said to be one accident every 20 minutes. Mate, that's, um, that's staggering. I'm, I, am, I, I had no idea that it's so prevalent.
5: Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty shocking. And, and what I normally share as one of my opening things in, in workshops is we share a few stats around landmines, and I kind of share, I think, what everyone's thinking. Like, I think we all kind of have this sense that Princess Di solved the problem. Mm. Um, When she was around, she definitely built enormous consensus towards reduction of landmines. She built momentum almost single-handedly for 160 countries in the world to sign up to a treaty that basically said two things. One was that they wouldn't use personnel targeting landmines, but they would still use vehicular ones. And two, that when they use those vehicular landmines, they at least note um, down where they are. So win, lose or draw, people can kind of safely find them and disarm them. But of course, there's more than 160 countries, even in the UN um, alone, let alone um, there's more than 160 kind of groups out there that would like to think of themselves as countries mm. and um, and wouldn't be recognised by the UN at all. So you've definitely still got countries and, and organisations out there using um, personnel targeting landmines that to be frank, kind of kill more civilians than they do people at war and and then almost beyond that you've got this kind of issue of you've got decades upon mm. decades of wars in some parts of the world where um, where we didn't note down where we put these wretched things and um, and it's really horrendously difficult to find and, and, and disarm them so yeah it's pretty pretty harassed. I think
2: one of the things I found most horrific, Matt in going through your stuff was that the whole idea of these landmines was not actually to kill people but to severely debilitate them. Yes. And you said that n- 95% of people survive and lose a limb. That, that's horrific, isn't it? It's awful.
5: Yeah, it really is. These things aren't designed to kill. They're designed to, to maim or, 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 or um, effectively at war. It's more effectively to injure someone than it is to kill them, because one injured person needs two people to look after them. so um as as horrendous as that sounds, that's the reality that we're dealing with. Um, and and I think the the scariest bit about all of this, is that um, I think it's up in the 90% of victims of landmines aren't actually the people that they were intended for during the war times. They're actually just civilians. They're farmers. They're people going about their general life.
1: The other problem is, too, that it's not age discriminatory either, is it? It's just completely random.
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 20% of the victims are kids. Um, you've got things called bouncing betties that detonate twice. One will, um, One of them, detonations, will fly the thing up in the air to about a metre above the... The ground, and then the second one will be the real detonation that'll send ball bearings across, kind of arm lengths. I mean, those things are pretty, pretty diabolically bad.
1: So we call you up, we get you to come out to our business and and hold one of your workshops. Um, as we've talked about, we we build our prosthetic hands and and we um and we we get a bit of team bonding going. Yep. Besides besides the team bonding, what what other results are you seeing at the end of a seminar in general? You know, with people in terms of you know participating in this? Awesome. Yeah.
5: Thanks for asking. Um, we will focus in each workshop differently depending on what the needs of that group are. So there's some groups where literally all they'll want is to just bond a bit and have a bit of fun and give back at Christmas time. We've got a stack of them at the mm, moment, right? Mm, so instead mm. of going out on the on the piss, um, <laughs> they'll, they'll effectively put together a hand. And give yeah, you back. just lost you
2: just lost Robo mate. Yeah, I'm gone. That's it. i <laughs> There's no if
1: there's no booze involved. What's the point? That's not a workshop. <laughs> uh, look, they might they might get in the piss afterwards. Maybe <laughs> that's the way we would do it.
5: With there Robbo. you go. That's the
1: plan. <laughs> yeah, there's the upsell. Robbo. <laughs> book the pub afterwards. Yeah,
5: <laughs> yeah you got friends with that. <laughs> but you know, there's, there's always going to be a group. That's gonna um, that's and, and heaps of groups that get together just for the bonding, mm. and it's a really great way to bond as a team to give something back to someone. But yeah. but then we've got um, BHP and Rio have both um, explored doing it as a hand injury awareness activity. Mm. Um, there's yeah, actually heaps right. of hand injuries in Australia, and yeah. um, and so even though this is a foreign kind of problem, it's a great way of raising awareness. There's um, there's companies out there that will enable us to um, use this to bring up their customer focus, because of course, um although we're doing some charity work, there's a real customer at the end that receives this hand, mm. and knowing that changes the way you Go about the activity, and and that's a really great thing to explore. And and then I think the single most important thing, the thing that that people almost always get me to talk about, is purpose and meaning in work. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and um, of course, you don't get a more purposeful and, and meaningful activity than mm. than what we're doing together.
1: Can I can I ask, mate? Um, the hands themselves are fairly special as well, aren't they? They're lightweight and and very strong. Yep. You've just been overseas from what I understand to drop some off is that correct? Yeah. So what sort of life changes are we talking I mean you know the, the, the major ones are obvious.
5: The hand we delivered last week was to a lady that was in her 70s she lives in a mud hut um, in a remote village in Uganda hmm. um, there's no power to her mud hut Um and um Actually, when she visited us, we were giving her um, clean, fresh water for the first time in um in her life but yeah. um, at the same time she 's been raising um, uh, grandkids in that hut i 'm mm. um, not sure of the backstory, but all the parents of those grandkids have actually passed away, and this woman was doing it one handed so effectively the the hen that we gave her um, like you say it 's um, it 's a pretty simple design it gives people the ability to just grasp. Um, something and release it. Mm. Um, she was really stoked at first at the ability to hold her um, walking stick with her with her um, with her residual limb. Mm. So, of course, all of a sudden, she's now got a free hand um, to to grab something if she stumbles. Mm. But I think more than that, um, when we fitted the hand, we kind of always encourage people go home, practice with it. You'll find all sorts of um, opportunities to use it. So we've we've. Um, I mean beyond the woman in Uganda that we helped out um, that I'm sure will find uses um, that we haven't even imagined but um, beyond that if you start to think about a double amputee for instance Mm. that receives our hand we've we've met people that haven't been able to wipe their bottom um, without the help of relatives Mm. for their entire life we've met people that haven't had the dignity of being able to hold a spoon and and feed themselves they've kind of had to rely on carers or eat directly off a plate on the table. Mm. Um, You know, I think the gift physically that we give people is transformative, but I actually think the emotional gift of letting someone know that someone loves them, that that person hasn't even met them and that they're on the other side of the world, we actually think sometimes that emotional gift is almost more valuable.
2: Mm. Matt, what's been the – we'll let you go because I know you've – because of the success of your spot on the project, you have got a lot going on in doing this work, which is great. Yeah. What, what's been the impact for you personally? You you spoke of purpose. We know that yeah. we know the power of helping somebody else. For you, since you started on this journey, yeah. what would you say has been
5: the greatest reward for you personally? I was in a refugee camp um, last Thursday and, um, That refugee camp was in Uganda, and um, these aren't people that are fleeing Uganda, although I would understand that it's a pretty um, poor country with not many options, but these are people that are fleeing from places that are even worse and fleeing to Uganda. They're people from Rwanda, um, Congo, and and other kind of surrounding countries. I then met a little boy that had a plastic bottle, which he'd fashioned into a toy car, and... And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And, and he was clutching that like it was his most prized possession. And I thought, well, I've got a couple of plastic bottles, empty water bottles that I've drunk in the car. I'm going to grab them and see if any other kids want them. Um, I went and grabbed them, and then a fight ensued between several other kids over over my bottles. <laughs> um, basically, kids were fighting over my rubbish. And I, I guess for me, to answer your question around... Um, what purpose have I found, I've really found hopefully that part of my purpose in life is to help people in in the developed world kind of realise just how lucky they are. Um, you know, I'm really blessed to be able to travel to places like Uganda and Cambodia and other parts of the world that need our, hand, our hands and also our water systems. But, um, you know, if just one or two more people gets that, perspective in Australia that actually we've got it pretty damn good um, <laughs> I, I feel like my job's done, that's kind of what keeps me driving.
2: Hey, it's beautiful mate The um, you've mentioned uh, Rio, Rio Tinto yep. and BHP yep. I know you're doing work with Woolworths, yep. all of those people are sponsors of the Mojo radio show <laughs> <you're afraid> <laughs> alright, cool <laughs> he's full of crap no, mate he's full of crap <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not. We, uh, hello to our friends at Corona and Tim um, <laughs> Is there a particular size organisation you'd like to hear from, Matt? Is it, is it really, you know, you mentioned the big guys, yeah. but does it also resonate and work for yeah. some of the smaller, you know, SMEs?
5: Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, actually... I'm happy for anyone to get involved that, that can. I think it's the kind of organisation that fits well with us is the organisation that um, is open to us, um, not open mm. to covering a bit of emotional content and waking waking attendees up a bit. Um, we're not the kind of the gig for people who want to kind of sit there and just receive a speech. Um, we, yeah. want, we want yeah. groups that want to get in there and, and actually change the world. Um, having said that, Um, The other thing that I kind of generally say is um, is we want companies with a genuine learning problem (laughs) that they want to solve because I think they're the companies that, that work best with us, the people that... Um, are doing a big cultural change or wanting to really ramp up their focus on customer service or the people that really want to ramp up their focus on quality or or, or that kind of sense of purpose and being important. Mm. They're the ones that really work well with us because they were going to spend money anyway. They were going to go out and, and get a training course and, and, and pay for yep. someone to develop something for them. And and they're the ones that we want to hear from because they can probably spend that same money and get... Um, kind of double bang for their buck is kind of great pitch. Yeah,
2: yeah. How does someone find you, Matt? Where where should we send people to get involved with you? The best
5: website is our um, is is just a website. It's helpinghandsprogram.com.au. Um, so Helping Hands plural and Programs dot American way P R O G R A M dot um, com dot um, The other option is if you look up. The same three words, helping hands program um, on Facebook. You'll often find us there, and we're pretty active on Facebook, so. Um, we tend to, you know, post photos and stuff of different groups that are helping us out. And, and when we receive photos back of recipients, we kind of post them there too. So two ways to get involved probably. Good on you. Yeah, That's
1: awesome,
2: po- awesome cool. program, mate. Well done. Thank you. Fantastic, mate. We, uh, we feel very privileged to have had you on our little program. Thanks for your time. Don't no worry. Thanks,
0: guys. The worst thing about having my in-laws around is the
3: awful presents
0: they give me.
2: They <laughs> fart. You know the big cheeky kisses that they give you? I hate
0: that. I The fact that you can't get drunk without them frowning upon you. I can't get pissed in front of my relatives. Worst thing about the outlaws is that they want to have cold lunch.
2: They all erupt into fights halfway through to lunch. I don't like them.
0: I hate
1: them all. The Mojo Radio Show. So I would put it out there to any corporate owner or corporate board member or, you know, corporate CEO, that if you really want to get the mojo going of your employees, I reckon there's about four or five different ways in a two, three hour, four hour session with Matt that you could do that, wouldn't you say?
2: A great Aussie doing great things. Tell Mm. you what, those statistics really are quite frightening. I, I had no idea that it was that prevalent.
1: Yeah. And isn't he right though too, because you sort of, you think about landmines and you think, oh, Diana took care of that years ago. But um, you don't, you know, because I I guess, as Matt said, because it doesn't directly affect us, we um, we just kind of put it to the back of your brain and think, oh well. You know that's all taken care of, but it's still such a huge issue.
2: I'm looking forward to seeing an action because to have a table of three or five people put together one of these hands, mm. and you've only got one hand to use with a stubby silver the other hand, mm. so you actually do have to work together. I think that would be uh, that would be a great exercise. So I'm sure, and as he said, the phones haven't stopped ringing since the project was on. So yeah. There's obviously a lot of corporate leaders out there who want to get involved, which is great. Absolutely, um, that's been a big show. Uh, what do you got to close?
1: I got a lesson in rock. God of rock, thank you for this chance to kick ass.
0: The Mojo Radio Show's Lessons in Rock.
1: A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Queen and Freddie Mercury and the Lesson Mm -hmm. in Rock. This week, we've Mm -hmm. got another one from Queen and David Bowie. Mm -hmm. We all know this song, right? This
0: is our last dance. This is
1: ourselves.
0: Under pressure.
1: Did you know... That On the original version, when it was originally written, David Bowie wasn't even thought about as as a partner on it, and it sounded like this. So, your question, I'm guessing, Mr. Bertwell, is: So, how did it get from there to
2: there? Yes, Darren, I <laughs> <how> did it. <laughs>
1: There's a quick story, and it's a great one. Um, The band invited David Bowie to actually come and sing on another track called Cool Cat, and it never saw the light of day because Bowie was never happy with his vocal on it and just said, look, there's no way I'm letting you release that. So everyone threw their hands in the air and sort of decided, oh, well, you know, let's just go out to dinner instead in true rock and roll fashion. Sitting around the dinner table, Roger Taylor mentions a song that he'd been working on, which we've just heard the demo of, called Feel Like. And at the same time, while they're talking about it, John Deacon, who's the bass player for Queen, comes out with his bass line, dum 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 dum, just humming it. And David Bowie looks across the table and says, "Do that again, dum 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 dum." David Bowie grabs a napkin and a pen, scribbles out the lyrics to what would become "Under Pressure," drop a wad of cash on the table, race back to the studio, put it down in what David Bowie describes as a couple of hours. There you go, number one hit all around the world. I
2: think we can take a fair bit from that.
1: Mm, Let's go and have dinner and wine.
2: (laughs) Well, it is. I mean, part of it is just whenever whenever I'm speaking about innovation and creativity with audiences anywhere in the world, where you ask them where their good ideas come to Mm. them, it's not in an office. It's not in front of a computer. Mm. It's not staring at their phone. It really is when you are relaxed and chilled, whether it be swimming and following the black line. Watering in the backyard, going for a walk, or drinking wine with friends, that's where your ideas generally mm-hmm. happen. The other lesson I would say is that if, if the old Elton John story, if you can't write something in 30 or 40 minutes, then close the piano and walk away, he said, I'll never try and draw blood from the stone. Mm-hmm. So if something wasn't happening, for example, in a boardroom, then close your book, go for a walk, go to the cafe and have a coffee and sit and relax, change the environment up, to get away from the environment that you're trying to create in. And the other thing that you said was that Bowie immediately wrote something down. Mm. The problem today is that people don't take their pads with them or a piece of paper or have a journal with them all Mm. the time. So when an idea does come up, you need to write it down and take notes. Even as Alain de Botton says, you write down one key word. And He's a well-known, best-selling philosopher and Mm. author. He said one word can lead to a best-selling book. Yeah, um, I think that. I mean, you could write. So there's, there's a whole sort of hour material on that. I mean, tinkering. Yes. Just <laughs> the bass player sitting there, you know, doing the line is just tinkering, or you know, as the as John Karabi would say, noodling. Yep. We just sit and experiment, yep. but we don't take the time in the corporate world to sit, experiment, and play. And what's more, I think the other thing that's really compelling is the fact that when they had a germ of an idea. They played with it, noodled it, got some ideas down. They then threw some bucks on the table and back and did it. And I think one of the issues today is that people don't have a noodle of an idea and then just take the next step, which is just throw some cash to the table, then go to the shea, then have a crack mm. at it, then collaborate. Mm. So um, we could do a lot on that. So. I'm just pulling them out, aren't I? I'm, I'm getting good at this. Yeah. I think we should try and get Benelta Rice on the uh, <laughs> on, the, on the show because he really was the one who... There's a yeah. creative innovation behind that little yeah, puppy. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm sure there is, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Check
0: out the hook while
2: DJ revolves it. Mind you, you play that in a in an environment where people have had a few beers, play that, and I guarantee the dance floor is pumping. So, uh, you know, leave Indeed. it Indeed, that. That's it at right, that.
1: exactly. All now, right. I've got to play out a song this week, and I, it actually relates back to last week's show. Um, it's the Dead Daisies, their new single "You and I." To your if just for your own mojo, listen to the lyric of this because it's just so current about you know what's happening in the world and the way you know we're approaching it and the, maybe the way we should rethink about approaching it. So I reckon this is worth. At Christmas time, when we're all thinking about the year gone by and the year coming, I reckon this is one worth having a listen to. Yeah.